0: The scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. It can be found on page 840 in the Black Bibles. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you done?
1: Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. The word of the Lord.
2: Thank you, John and Susan. And good morning to you, and I know what you're thinking right now you are thinking, well, that's it. The stress has finally gotten to our pastor because he does not know that he read this passage last week and preached from it. Truth is, I do know that. I figured that out actually before the first sermon this morning. Uh, So this is on purpose. I want to hone in. As we think about some of our initiatives at Christ the King, some of the ways that we're hoping uh, in 2020 uh, to uh, make headway into reaching our city and into some of the ways uh, that we use our resources to that end, I wanted to go back to this passage and shine a light a little bit brighter on just a couple of aspects on it. So let me pray, ask God to help us, and we'll dive into this passage. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have the power and ability and you delight to make all things new. You bring new life and new life. And we pray, Father, that as we uh, encounter that this morning, that you would motivate us to shine that light brightly in the city that we live in. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to uh, drill down to today before, and then I'm going to actually turn it over to Andres and Jaime, who are going to talk a little bit about some initiatives of our church, is I want us to to think about the aspects of fear that are presented in this particular passage. If you'll remember, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, fear has been a major theme. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus would do things, and people are afraid because everything that they believe that they know to be true about the world is thrown upside down and into you know, a tizzy because Jesus is transformative. He transforms everything, and it, it, it reorients all of our lives. And so two of the ways that we can feel fear when we encounter Jesus, one is with respect to our financial security. That's a fact. All feel that. And one is that we can feel fear when Jesus challenges us to engage in the world in a risky manner. And both of those things are actually presented to us here in this passage. And And, and this is not unusual. If you go through the Gospels, you'll see this over and over and over again, that Jesus is pushing people with respect to their financial resources And he is pushing people with respect to their engagement in the world. Uh, All of these conversations Jesus has with people about their finances and all of this conflict, for example, this is not it, that Jesus has with people like the Pharisees to tell them to stop collecting doctrine for themselves and to represent Jesus in the world. This is because we are called as followers of Jesus to live by faith. And as we saw a couple of weeks ago, faith is actually the opposite of fear. Faith is a core value of Christ the King. If you remember uh, some of the core values that we've talked about over the last couple of years, faith is one of those. And the way that we're talking about faith as a value of our church is that we are committed as a church to take risky initiatives on behalf of the gospel. We are committed as a church to take risks on behalf of the kingdom that are destined to fail if Jesus is not with them and he doesn't cause them to succeed. And one of the things that that means is that we're going to shoot some three-pointers that clank off of the rim. We're going to throw some Hail Marys that get batted down by the cornerback. You know, not everything that we do, not every shot that we take, not every pass that we throw is going to land, but we're still going to shoot and we're still going to throw because we're called as people of God to live by faith and not by fear. And we're called to live by faith in one place with respect to the financial resources that the Lord gives to us. And I'm going to admit something. Of the front end. This text before us never specifically tells us why it is that the people who were living in the city, who were living in the countryside, when they came and they saw the formerly demon possessed man sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the text tells us they were afraid. And they begged Jesus to go away, but they never tell us exactly why they were afraid. And I think we can deduce from the text two reasons. One is because their homeostasis was just thrown off. Everything that they thought that they knew to be true about the world and had grown comfortable with was thrown off. And they had learned how to live fine with a demon-possessed man running around the tombs. They just knew how to live that way. That was just part of their life and so when Jesus brought that man from death to life when he transformed them when he removed those demons from them the way that they understood the world was thrown off and they were uncomfortable and they were afraid but there's another reason too 2,000 pigs which is why we know that these are Gentiles and not Jews who are herding those pigs 2,000 pigs in the first century is worth a lot of money Two thousand pigs. That is a lot of pork bellies on the commodities market of first century East, uh, you know, East Coast of the Sea of Galilee. And so, what happened? The, all those pigs are gone. And so they come and they see this man. And where they should have rejoiced, and they should have, so they should have said, "Look how powerful this man! Look what he did! Look what he can do!" They basically saw the after effects, they saw the lost income, they saw the disruptive nature of the power of Jesus, and they begged him to go away. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is an absolutely transformative power in our lives, that if you put your trust in him, don't do it. Don't do it if you just want him to kind of be a little spiritual supplement. Don't do it if you want like a strong cup of religious coffee or a Red Bull, you know, to kind of, you know, kind of throw you over the edge of self, of happiness or self actualization. If you come to Jesus by faith, be prepared for what he actually does, which is to transform everything in your life, even your financial resources and your commitment to it. You know, one of the things that Jesus said, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, is where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. When this rich young man came to visit Jesus, he pulled out of his pocket his religious resume, and he put it down in front of Jesus. And he said, look at my resume, Jesus. Look at what I have done for you. Look at how I've been religiously active. Look at all of my bullet points. And Jesus looked at that. And he said, one thing you lack, just one thing. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the proceeds to the poor. And the text tells us that the young man went away sad. Why? Because Jesus looked at his religious resume and he saw that he was putting his trust both in himself and in his financial resources. And when Jesus popped that bubble when he found out who his true savior was, who he and what he was truly relying on for salvation, it crushed him. Because his financial resources were his god. What Jesus is reminding us here in this text is that the salvation of just one person is more Than the financial value of 2,000 pigs. And the people in that countryside didn't actually believe that. This man that Jesus saved is a holistic human being, body and soul, both of which have an eternal future, either with the Lord for eternity in heaven or apart from the Lord in hell. And that is worth more than the value of our real estate. It is worth more than the security of our 401Ks. It is worth more than our individual stocks. It is worth more than our business ventures. The eternal destiny of just one person. And that's disruptive to us, is it not? Do we actually believe that? Do we really believe that? Jesus tells us that that we live by faith. We'll trust Him with what he gives us for the purposes of transforming people in this world. But the disruptiveness of Jesus doesn't stop there. Jesus also calls us to trust him with our missional fear, our representation of him in the world. Now, I use this word missional on purpose, and I need to define it because it's insider lingo for some people, and for some people, when the word mission or missional is used, it, it kind of breeds a little bit of suspicion, because you think that there's doctrine, teaching on the one hand, and mission on the other hand, and those are, have a dichotomous relationship to one another. You know, you're either focused on doctrine or you're focused on mission, but you can't be focused on both. You heard that on the internet. Somebody on the internet told you that. Well, they were wrong, okay? Okay because Jesus tells you totally differently in this passage and a million other places. But this is what I want you to see in this passage and throughout the gospels. Doctrine, which is understood or defined as the teaching of the Bible, okay? But I'm going to use this word doctrine. Doctrine without mission is not true doctrine. But the same the opposite is also true. Mission without doctrine is not true mission. Teaching and mission in the Bible go together. Here's what this means. If you just have mission, if you just go out there and just do stuff, but you do that without teaching, if there's no doctrine, if there's, if there's no uh, depth to it, if there's nothing rooting it, what that does is it leads to a couple of things. First of all, it leads to immature disciples of Jesus. It leads to immature uh, uh, Christians who are easily led astray by false teaching. Um, Cross-reference the book of 1 Corinthians, if you want to see that in the Bible. Not that Paul had no doctrine, I'm just saying it takes the time to develop mature disciples. But it also can lead to people with an anything-goes mentality to representing Jesus. Okay, we live, as we're about to talk about, we live in a secularizing culture. And one of the things that's true about a secularizing culture is there's a lot about the Bible that they find distasteful. So we need to kind of change those things, right? We need to change that because if we're going to reach them, they, we can't give them all this stuff. It's, it's too dip. No. No. You, you can't do that. You can't do that. If you have no teaching, you have no doctrine, you have no truth. If you have no truth, you have nothing for people to build their lives on. If you have nothing for people to build your lives on, you ultimately have only empty shells. So mission without doctrine is not true mission. But here's the other side of that corn. Coin, not corn. Talk about pigs, not corn. Other commodity in this this passage. Doctrine... Just teaching, just collecting teaching and theology for ourselves that does not lead us into mission, that does not lead us to actively engage the world on behalf of Christ breeds spiritual pride and arrogance. And that results ultimately in a bunch of intramural debates. Basically Christians that just argue with each other all the time rather than taking risks to engage the world on behalf of Jesus. So teaching and mission go together. Mission and teaching go together. Let me remind you from this passage what we saw last week that happened here. This man, who had been possessed by a legion of demons, was saved by the power of Christ who had mercy on him. In a sense, he became a disciple that day. He became a follower of Jesus. And so what did he want to do? He wanted, the text tells us, to get in the boat and to go with Jesus. He wanted to be discipled by Jesus. He wanted Jesus to equip him. He wanted Jesus to teach him. But what does Jesus say? Nope, you can't come with me. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to your home and tell your friends what Jesus has done for you. And this is essentially what he did. He went there and told his friends what Jesus had done for him. And then he decided he was going to keep on going. And he went throughout all of the Decapolis. This guy who probably knew very little about the Hebrew scriptures. This guy who really didn't know anything went out and became a missionary and told people all that Jesus had done for him. Now, I want to make an important but a little bit of a tricky point here. So I'm going to say this again. This has become my, my new favorite saying. I'm going to probably learn it in Latin so it will sound better. But, but, but hear it again. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? Please, don't hear what I'm not saying. What I am not saying is that the church bears no responsibility for discipleship and for equipping. Completely and totally and demonstrably from the Bible, false, right? We bear a ton of responsibility toward that end. A ton of responsibility to grow mature followers of Jesus, to equip them to serve in the world. So don't hear what I'm not saying, but do look at this passage right here. And do see this. Your passion and my passion, your effort and my effort to faithfully represent Jesus in this city and this world don't actually depend upon you feeling either discipled or equipped. Now, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying again, but hear what I am saying. You, because basically what we are trained as American Christians is to think is this. You become a follower of Jesus You are then trained or discipled, and then you are sent out to to be a missionary, to do work on behalf of Jesus. But that is not the pattern or the model that you see in the Bible ever. What you see in the Bible are people doing mission and training all at the same time. In fact, in the next chapter of the Gospel of Mark, one of the things that we're going to see is that Jesus takes his 12 disciples, who we know, obviously, know squat right now because they're still, you know, it's very soon after they had experienced Jesus' miracle of calming the sea, and they have no idea what's going on there, so they don't know everything. They're not fully formed disciples of Jesus and he sends them out on mission. And they go out on mission, and they do some great things, but then they get really confused about a bunch of other things, and then they come back, and then what happens? They ask Jesus questions, and he teaches them. And then he sends them out again. This is the pattern. That, doc, that, that, that mission and equipping go hand in hand. Hugh Laurie, the actor, once said this in an interview. He said, it's a terrible thing, I think, in life to wait until you're ready. I have this feeling now that actually no one is ever ready to do anything. There is almost no such thing as ready, and you may as well do it now. Generally speaking, now is as good a time as any. So what does this mean? What do we do? Well, I would suggest... That we as the people of Christ the King take seriously this text. And we begin to model this man. This man who had been redeemed by Jesus. This man who came to Jesus and said, Jesus I want you to teach me. And Jesus said, no. You just go tell people what I did for you. And we engage. He goes out to his city. And he says, guess what? I had these demons and then Jesus cast them out into these pigs and then these pigs drowned in the ocean and now I'm a Christian. And the people say, wow, that's interesting. Can we break that down in systematic theological terms? And he says, I don't think you heard me. You see, there were these demons, right? And they were here in me and now they're not. And he just goes out there and he just does this mission. You know why? Because being on mission is a key component of your discipleship. That's what Jesus does. He sends the disciples out. He knows they're going to fail. But he does it anyway because it's part of his training of them. He doesn't wait until they are ready. And he doesn't wait until we're ready either. So we go out into the world. We try to represent Jesus. We get beat up. We get our noses bloodied. And then we come back, right? And we're encouraged by the word of God and the sacraments and each other and the community that we're in here at Christ the King. And, and we get encouragement, we get teaching, and we get training, and we get prayer, and then we go back and it is the cycle. And this happens until you die or until Jesus comes back. This is the way that mission and discipleship and equipping work. It's a symbiotic relationship that way. Tons of examples of that here, even at Christ the King, even among some of you. You know, there are major mission partners that we have in this church that people here started without knowing what they were doing. And then we said, hey, that's great. Can we support you? Little Lights is one of those ministries, if you've heard of that. Christmas Boxes of Blessing is one of those ministries where people just saw a need and went out there and started doing stuff and made some mistakes and then learned and then kept on going. You know, one of my best friends, I'll give you an example. I'm going to close with this. And then I'm going to turn it over to Andres and Jaime. And I don't really know what time we're supposed to end. Are we on time, Andres, or what? am I bad? Okay, you give me the thumbs up. Uh, I don't know if you're going to give me a thumbs down, but uh, so anyway, um, I have a, a friend who's becoming a really good friend. His name is Ronnie Garcia. Ronnie Garcia is a church planter in San Juan, Puerto Rico, in, in our denomination, in, in the in the PCA. Ronnie's a normal guy. He's a Houstonian. He grew up uh, in Clear Lake area. He went to the Air Force Academy. He went to seminary at Covenant Seminary, where I went, and he went to San Juan. Uh, to plant a spanish-speaking church now they've planted two churches there one is spanish-speaking one is english-speaking their goal ultimately is to begin through church planting in puerto rico the first spanish-speaking presbytery in our denomination by planting enough churches on the island of puerto rico uh, to support having their own presbytery which is really awesome and you know, Rodney would say, if you asked him, that he's just a run-of-the-mill pastor. You know, PCA kind of pastor guy. He's smart, he's pretty cerebral, he likes to read, he likes to talk about theology. Like all of the rest of us, he's very conservative in his approach to the Bible and the authority of the scriptures. And he's still like that, but something happened in Puerto Rico that totally changed the trajectory of his ministry. And that something that happened was Hurricane Maria... That swept across Puerto Rico in 2017, essentially uh, catastrophically destroying that island. And Ronnie has a really long testimony about his church's response to this disaster, but it involves things like getting a chainsaw first to get out of his house, second to get down his street, third to get to his church, and then to put a, hook up a generator at his church to use his church as a shelter. Um, they had a washer and dryer for some reason, and, and, and the entire city came and washed and dried their clothes there for like three months. And then to go to a Costco that was closed, and to convince the manager to open the Costco, and they rented some trucks, some four-wheel drive trucks, and they bought all of the water, all of the disciples, I was saying disciples all of the diapers. All of the non-perishable food that they could squeeze into those trucks and they drove out of San Juan up into the mountains of Puerto Rico to distribute those things. And he tells me stories about they came upon house upon house and it's rare that they came upon a house out in the country, out in the non-urban areas where someone in that house had not died from that hurricane and they did not know what they were doing. They were just giving stuff away, and then they would come back, and they would talk about, hey, this worked. this didn't work, how can we do this more effectively? And then somebody gave them a book, and it's a book that our deacons actually use in their training to learn how to minister here among us. It's called When Helping Hurts, and they read that book, and they said, oh, we're kind of messing this up. Let's do this better, and then they, they, one of the members of their church became, essentially, Full time kind of disaster coordinator, and he went and did some seminars and you know relief and development. But they didn't start out having any idea what they were doing in relief and development, they just went to try to help people. And then they made some mistakes and they learned from their mistakes and they developed. And this is what happened because this church and this to these two churches jumped in so quickly and they were so effective because, A, they were doing something, and, B, they were doing something honestly and transparently. If you've read a lot about, recently even, about disaster relief in Puerto Rico, you've seen that that's been a problem uh, in some of their official channels. They became the hub of, of disaster relief for that island, not because they're disaster relief people, but because they just went out there and started doing it. See, you see what happened? They're disciples of Jesus. They saw a need. They went to meet the need. They messed up. They evaluated. They were taught. They were strengthened. And they went out and did it again and again and again and again. Why? Because the truth is that all of this is not about us. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how strategic we are. It is simply the fact that, That God is at work. And he chooses to use broken arrows, not pristinely straight ones, to cut to the heart of people. He chooses to use broken people like us because he gets all of the glory. That's why we can live by faith. That's why we can go and engage this world and not know everything exactly that we're doing all the time, but then come back and then be taught and be equipped and be strengthened and go out again. We can do that as individuals. We can also do that as a church. And one of the ways that we are called to lean in to this act of faith is in this daunting aspect of our vision of reaching Houston for Christ, which is, by the way, daunting and impossible, but we're serious about it. We're actually serious about trying to do that. And if you think about the city of Houston, all four plus million people, all of the languages that are spoken, all of the cultures that are represented here, all of the nationalities that are represented here, you will know by logic that that cannot all happen in this room. But if we're serious about it, it has to happen some way. And I wanted to invite Andres and Jaime Jimenez to come and talk a little bit about one initiative toward that end. And then we'll do a little bit of uh, discussion about finances for 2020 and offering. And First Communion, which is awesome because I love those. We're going to get there, I promise. Yeah.